0: Welcome to Skim This. The war
1: in Ukraine has entered a new phase of brutality. This week, Russia ramped up its attacks on civilians, and U.S. officials are warning that we're going to see even more atrocities in the coming days. We'll bring you the latest about what's going on on the ground in Ukraine, and speak to an expert about what weapons Russia could use next.
2: We are all still sort of bracing for impact and expect that the tighter these sanctions become, that Russia will likely respond, and a major lever they have is cyber.
1: We've also got the other news you need to know, including a check-in on inflation and an update on the future of crypto in the United States. And we'll wrap things up by talking to a TV critic about why we're so obsessed with watching shows about tech founders and their shady behavior. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr, let's skim this. Let's start with some updates on the ongoing war in Ukraine. Russia seems to be targeting civilians, trying to
0: flee their country. The unprecedented shelling of areas where people are evacuating is sparking fear and outrage.
2: We are hearing these stories now from the eastern part of the country, where these cities have been under siege, where it is not just the explosions that are starting to kill civilians.
3: It is the cold. It is the lack of... Electricity is the lack of water. Ukrainians are fortifying their capital, and President Zelensky is vowing to stay.
1: Russia's military still hasn't taken any major cities except one southern port, but it has ramped up attacks on critical infrastructure and on civilian areas as we enter a brutal new phase of this war. Hundreds of thousands have been left without basic necessities, like food, heat, or electricity. And on Wednesday, a Russian airstrike hit a children's and maternity hospital in the city of Mariupol. At least 17 people have been injured, three people are dead, and the extent of the casualties is still unknown. In the past few days, Russia has also been accused of shelling supposed evacuation corridors, creating a deadly path for Ukrainians trying to leave the country. According to the UN, More than 500 civilians have been killed and more than 900 injured since the fighting began two weeks ago. And reports suggest that the actual numbers are much higher. Refugees have also continued to pour out of the country. The UN says that over 2 million refugees have fled. That's roughly 4% of Ukraine's population and 1 million more people than this time last week. At least half of those fleeing are children. So the pressure's been on the international community to do more to hit back at Russia and help the humanitarian crisis. And this week, the U.S. upped its response. The House passed a $1.5 trillion spending bill that includes over $13 billion in aid to Ukraine. And on Tuesday, President Biden also made a big announcement. He said that the U.S. will no longer import any energy from Russia. We're talking about oil, liquefied natural gas, and coal. It's a move Biden had been weighing for a bit, but he's held out until now over concerns it would strain global energy supplies and ramp up prices. And considering inflation is already at a 40-year high, that's a pretty big concern. Now, with this announcement, fuel prices are only gonna go higher. To get some context on what this move means, we spoke to Christine Berzinga. She's a senior fellow and head of the geopolitics team at the Alliance for Securing Democracy.
0: Very directly, it means that U.S. dollars that normal citizens pay for the gasoline they put in their cars, oil products, natural gas, none of that will then be directly contributing to Russia's war effort. The oil and gas industry is a really significant part of Russia's state budget. And that is what funds the military. So you can make a direct line from each barrel of oil that the U.S. would purchase to helping Russia's war
1: effort. That is not a position that the U.S. can be in. Berzinga told us the U.S. is in a better position to say no thanks to Russian energy than Europe which imports around 40% of its gas and one-quarter of its oil from Russia, while we in the States only get about 8% of our petroleum products from Russia. Still, in the wake of the U.S. announcement, the 27 countries in the European Union voted to cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds by the end of this year. But if all these countries, including us, are cutting Russia off, where is our energy going to come from? First, we'll likely see U.S. oil producers ramp up their own production. And second, we might have to rely on other countries, including Venezuela and Iran, for some supply. And P.S., they aren't exactly our besties. Berzinga told us that realization that we have to rely on frenemies for really essential supplies could spark new conversations about American energy reliance. The U.S. needs to have a conversation about fossil fuels. We are having it. Normally, it's a conversation that is all about
0: climate, you know, in the midst of this terrible war. If the U.S. or other countries aren't going to be using Russian gas, you have to look at Venezuela, you look at Iran, you look at the Saudis. And honestly, why would we want to get into bed any deeper with any of these other actors? But at the very least, can we get rid of the imports and our entanglements with those economies and those countries that are hurting us for geopolitical and strategic reasons.
1: And besides forcing U.S. lawmakers to reconsider where we get our energy from, it might also force a conversation about what kind of energy we rely on.
0: So if we're not going to use their fossil fuels, if we're going to try to reduce our overall consumption and try to knock it down to our own stuff, then we need to increase renewables. We're going to have to think through when it comes to oil, what does our transportation sector look like? Are we driving gasoline or diesel cars? Are we driving electrical vehicles? If we're using electrical vehicles, where's that energy coming from, right? How do we reshape our societies and our economies to think of things that could be part of the energy sector If we're going to really make the effort to get off of politically toxic fuels, let's replace that with something that helps us be more resilient in the long term to these geopolitical problems, as well as to climate and environmental problems.
1: Now that the United States has banned Russian oil Experts say it's likely that Russia is going to retaliate. And one of the ways it could hit the West back is with cyber attacks. Quick reminder, Russia has gone all in on upping their cyber capabilities over the past few years. And Russian hackers have even not so subtly attacked US infrastructure already from oil pipelines to private company servers. To break down this threat and the next potential stage of this war, we called up a cybersecurity expert. Nicole Perlroth is a journalist, and advisor to the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the author of This Is How They Tell Me, The World Ends. Okay, that sounds kind of scary, but we're going to break it down. Nicole, thanks for joining us. We've seen Russia go at this war in a couple of ways. We've seen them attack Ukraine militarily. We've seen them kind of conduct information warfare on their home turf. And we're also seeing them attack Ukraine with cyber attacks. Can you walk
2: me through where we're at right now in terms of cyber attacks? I have to say it's been much more lightweight than we expected. We expected Russia to do a repeat of what they did in 2015, 2016, when they actually used cyber tools to turn off the power in Western Ukraine and then later in Kyiv but we haven't seen that. Instead, what we've seen is sort of lower level sabotage. So the first thing they did was they launched what's called a denial of service attack, where they flooded banks and some government agencies with just junk web traffic so that you couldn't access the websites, or in some cases, people couldn't access the ATMs, so they couldn't get money out of ATMs. Then we caught them installing what's called wiper malware on a number of Ukraine government ministries and agencies. So wiper malware is actually what North Korea used on Sony. So what it does is it just erases your data, but its impact is that it can really paralyze your operation. So far, the cyber attacks have been relatively contained. It's not what we thought it would be. That said, we are all still sort of bracing for impact and expect that the tighter these sanctions become, especially with President Biden saying he's going to ban the import of Russian oil, that Russia will likely respond. And a major lever they have is cyber. For people
1: listening who might not be familiar, can you walk us through what Russia's cyber capabilities are and why they've invested in this as a weapon?
2: Russia understands that the United States and the West have a very soft underbelly when it comes to cyber. We have basically automated and digitized our entire economy, critical infrastructure like pipelines, aviation systems, railways, banks, you name it, we've digitized it over the last decade. And all that digital connectivity allows for an attacker to basically sabotage systems remotely. If you look at some of the cyber attacks Russia's conducted over the last decade, we've seen them hack energy and oil companies, pipelines, you name it, they've probed it. So in many cases, we know they have access. We also know that they have the capabilities to shut these systems down The only thing that Russia hasn't had until now, they've had access, they have the capabilities. The only thing they haven't had was the geopolitical impetus to actually pull the trigger on these things. And that's why people like me and people who've been covering Russia's cyber attacks and their capabilities are really freaking out right now, because we know that if pushed into a corner, this is the most likely way Russia would respond. You know, using the access they already have to basically shut our systems down. And when you think about it, it's a huge psychological weapon. I I think ultimately it's inevitable that he will start pushing the button on some of these capabilities.
1: And by that, you mean he'll be pushing the US and EU systems in particular?
2: This is where it's really important to listen to Putin's words on sanctions. So, you know, over the last couple of weeks, it was sanctions, sanctions. you know, we don't care, we're prepared. But then over the last weekend, he actually called it a declaration of war. So if it's a declaration of war, how would he respond? I don't think he's going to start firing weapons at the West, but cyber has always been this just short of war tool that can cause real physical destruction in some cases. And so that's why we're all watching this very closely.
1: What does our audience need to know about how prepared the U.S.
2: actually is if these cyber threats continue to escalate? We are, I still believe, the top dog when it comes to cyber offense. The sophistication of the cyber attacks the United States has pulled off in the past against Iran in particular, nobody has come close to that level of sophistication. That said, look around you. I mean, the United States is now one of the most frequently targeted nations on earth by cyber attacks. We saw just in last year alone, what cyber criminals were doing. I mean, they hit colonial pipeline they hit our hospitals. They hacked into our water treatment facilities. They didn't get as far as actually causing harm, but it gives you a sense of just how vulnerable the United States is. And really we're dealing with this structural challenge, which is 80% of America's critical infrastructure, water, power, pipelines, dams, telecom, banking is in private hands. So what you have now is a situation where most of our critical systems are in private sector hands, but they have no rules mandating that they secure it. And that means we're very vulnerable. I mean, the story I tell over and over again is Colonial Pipeline. I mean, this was the biggest conduit for gas and jet fuel and diesel to the Eastern Seaboard. Cyber criminals were able to preempt its shutdown And how were they able to do it? They were able to do it because the company never deactivated an old employee account. They never turned on two-factor authentication and that old employee had a crappy password. And unfortunately, Colonial Pipeline is the norm. They're not the exception.
1: If you're talking to a company right now and you could tell their leadership, their IT team, a manager at any company in the U.S. how they should prioritize cybersecurity, what
2: would be the one or two things you would advise them to think about? Well, number one, get a chief information security officer if you don't have one. And then two, empower that person and do whatever they say, give them whatever budget they need. I mean, the main thing is that people need to understand that enterprises need to be logging what's happening on their network and searching for suspicious activity so they can report it and shut it down. And then it's the bare basics, which is cyber hygiene, which is use a password manager, turn on two-factor authentication wherever you can run phishing exercises with your employees so they're not clicking on phishing. And I know that sounds really basic, but 80% of ransomware attacks happen through some combination of phishing and a lack of two-factor authentication. I mean, that's all it would take to prevent these ransomware attacks. Just to like connect back to the Ukraine situation, the silver lining on ransomware hitting the United States at the rate it was for the last year and a half, the silver lining there is that Finally, board members and executives and leadership teams were saying, how do we prevent the next ransomware attack? And all of the work that was done to stave off ransomware is going to help us right now should the situation in Ukraine escalate to the point where Russia starts punishing the West with cyber attacks.
1: Is there any country who has strong
2: cyber defense? Like, who's doing this well? So I looked at this for my book, because this was a question that was like, is this so hopeless? You know, is there even any point? And I found out that actually, no, there's a lot of hope. (laughs) What was really instrumental was looking at Scandinavian countries. So these are countries that are very much digitized, but they have a very low rate of successful attacks to total number of attacks. And when the researchers looked at why It was because they had these very comprehensive, strong national cybersecurity policies and laws that had real sticks for critical operators, companies that operate critical systems. If they didn't use two-factor authentication, if they didn't encrypt sensitive data, if they didn't have antivirus installed, if they didn't log what was happening on their network, they were fined. So those laws work. But here in the United States, anytime we've attempted to even do half of that, it gets killed by lobbyists. So the lesson is that in this space, in cyber, laws work.
1: My last question for you as you watch this kind of cyber iron curtain continue is what are you going to be looking
2: out for and what might ring your alarm bells? You know, the most serious cyber attacks we have seen have come with countries who have very little left to lose. And I think what we're seeing in Russia is that very soon they're gonna have very little left to lose. And sanctions, but also the presidential announcement that they're gonna ban the import of Russian oil, that is going to hurt. And what is Russia's response going to be I think the one response that is probably going to be most likely is they're going to retaliate by trying to hurt American businesses and maybe our own gas and oil infrastructure. So, where I'm watching is pipelines, banks. You know, banks are actually pretty secure compared to other critical sectors, but pipelines, that's what I'm most worried about. We have not adequately secured our pipeline infrastructure. We've seen in some cases Russia's already inside some of these networks. And so are they going to go as far as to shut these systems down like cyber criminals did indirectly with Colonial Pipeline? You know, So imagine Colonial Pipeline on steroids. That's to me the worst case scenario. That's what I'm watching for. But again, if Putin directs cyber attacks on our pipelines, we would turn around and do the same. You know, President Biden has said that. We would respond to attacks on our critical infrastructure. And so, you know, I think he is wondering whether it's going to be worth it. Nicole, thank you so much. I feel like I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Alex.
1: As you've heard over the past few weeks, the West is waging financial war on Russia. And while some of that includes going after Russia's banks and stashes of money, some of it might sound a little more unconventional.
0: We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets.
1: We're talking about Russian oligarchs. And putting the squeeze on them could be a key factor in pressuring Putin to end his invasion. But who are these guys, and why do they matter? Plus, why do they have so many yachts? We're going to try to break it down for you in 60 seconds. Oligarchs are extremely wealthy Russians that have influence within Russia's government, despite never having been elected to actual positions of power. They're in businesses like oil and steel and have acquired multi-billion dollar fortunes, all thanks to their closeness with Putin. And because Putin helped make or keep them rich, they've basically turned a blind eye to a lot of his actions in the past. But now, the US and EU are saying, we're gonna try to break up this friendship. They've been going after and even seizing the oligarchs' overseas assets, including luxury goods, homes, private jets, and obviously, their yachts. And everyday people are also getting in on the action. One Twitter account run by a U.S. college student has even been tracking the yacht's locations. Talk about public service. The Biden administration says it's the oligarchs that are responsible for low-key supplying the resources to support Putin's army. So they should also pay the price for this war. And so far, things have been pretty rocky for Russia's elite class. Besides their assets being frozen, some of them are scrambling to distance themselves from Putin and are resigning from companies all over Europe. Like Roman Abramovich, an energy tycoon and the owner of the British soccer club Chelsea FC, the British government just froze his assets, and he's offered to put Chelsea up for sale and donate the proceeds to Ukrainian victims. Maintaining friendly relations with Europe is important to a lot of these oligarchs, because let's face it, these guys want a summer in Saint-Tropez, and not in St. Petersburg. Whether this squeeze on Putin's inner circle is enough to get him to back down is still TBD, but one thing's for sure. We're definitely tuning into this next season of Below Deck, Yacht Seizures Edition. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at the All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, new inflation numbers dropped today. And spoiler, things are still really expensive. Today's data shows that prices are 7.9% higher than this time last year, and inflation is at a 40-year high. But even though we've been talking about costs going up for a while, here's what's different. There's now a big war in Europe that's threatening prices for major commodities and goods, including grains and metals. Not to mention, energy is at the center of this conflict, And we need energy to transport basically anything that needs to get to us by plane, train, or car. So if gas gets more expensive, everything else does, too. Some economists are now saying the war in Ukraine could usher in a longer period of inflation than we originally expected, and that prices haven't reached their peak yet. The Federal Reserve, which sets monetary policy in the U.S., is set to meet next week, And it's a safe bet that this new report will probably be at the top of their agenda.
0: Okay, next headline. Bitcoin and Ethereum leading the crypto market higher today. President Biden signing an executive order stating the United States must maintain technological leadership in the rapidly growing crypto space.
1: Here's what you need to know. On Wednesday, Biden signed an executive order saying it's time that the U.S. formally starts looking at the upside and downside of cryptocurrencies. If you're thinking this might have been helpful last year during all that Dogecoin drama, you're not wrong. The U.S. is late to the crypto game, and other countries have already been leading the charge here. So now Biden is trying to play catch up, and specifically, he wants to help the 40 million people in the U.S. that have invested in, traded, or used crypto avoid the financial risks that go along with it. Biden also wants his deputies to study the environmental risks of crypto, as well as look into the possibility of a digital U.S. dollar. While it could take months for all this guidance to come together, our SKIM money team is always one step ahead and has what you need to know about crypto every week in their newsletter. Sign up at theskim.com slash money. And our final headline this week. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was passed with unanimous consent Monday night. Here's the context. This bill is named after the 14-year-old black boy who was tortured and murdered in Mississippi in 1955 in a racist attack that sparked the civil rights movement. And 67 years after his death, the Senate unanimously passed a bill that would make lynching a federal hate crime punishable by up to 30 years in prison. We'll state the obvious here. This has been long overdue, Throughout U.S. history, lynching has been an all-too-common weapon of hate, and Congress has attempted to pass similar legislation over 200 times already. And no, that number is not a typo. But now that they've finally gotten this bill over the finish line, lawmakers hope the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act will help the U.S. confront this painful legacy and commit to justice moving forward. Let's talk about change. We're all going through change, especially right now. But what exactly happens when we find ourselves at the brink of change? That's the question at the center of the new Pushkin podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. Dr. Maya Shunker hosts intimate, revealing conversations with people who've lived through extraordinary changes, like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, and Casey Musgraves and little-known guests too, like a young cancer researcher in the throes of a stage four diagnosis, and a black jazz musician who convinced KKK members to leave the Klan. You'll come away thinking a bit differently about change in your own life. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. If you've turned on Netflix, Hulu, or your Apple TV recently, you may have noticed there's a new genre that's taking over. The world
0: works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. The future of work looks different.
1: I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make
2: them believe by being undeniable.
1: Three new TV shows feature the rise of some of the biggest tech companies and some of their biggest fails. Maybe you've heard people talking about The Dropout, starring Amanda Seyfried. It's the show that chronicles the rise and fall of Theranos, one of the most legendary Silicon Valley scams of the past few years. It's not even close to working yet. What are we gonna show at the demo? We're gonna tell them that we don't have a working prototype. Right? Or maybe you've tuned in to Super Pumped, which is the story of the controversial rise of Uber and its founder, who is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt.
3: Is this legal? <laughs> <laughs> We're kind of this kid up. It's not really illegal if the laws are bullshit in the first place.
1: Or maybe you've seen the trailer for We Crashed, which is about the high highs and low lows of WeWork, starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway.
3: We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work.
1: So why are production companies pumping out these
3: tech stories? I think one reason that these shows exist with actors is that they are very easy to sell. From a pure industry perspective... People have demonstrated their interest. And so it is extremely easy to say, we will make this into a show and we know people will watch it. And they are right. Like the financial element of it, just, you know, stamp that sucker in gold. That's Catherine Van Arundong, a critic for Vulture and New York Magazine.
1: She told us this genre is in part exploding because the tech industry now dominates
3: our day-to-day. I think the last probably five to ten years, has been a slow discovery for a lot of Americans that tech companies have taken over their lives in ways that maybe they did not previously appreciate. I think the election of Donald Trump was this moment where suddenly everyone thought, wait, is Facebook doing things that I did not understand before? We have had so many incredibly massive changes in the way that we live our daily lives because of companies like this. I mean, how many people have taken an Uber, which was something that did not exist a very short period of time ago? So it is a combination of that sudden sense of pervasiveness of these companies and the growing understanding that these companies are often founded on less than ideal or less than solid ground. So it's no wonder that our cultural fascination with these
1: companies and the people who started them has increased a lot.
3: These are our myths now. Like, these are our superheroes. This is the same as a Marvel universe, where we want to go back and see this story told again in a slightly different but clearly familiar way because it resonates deeply with our understanding of America, and we need those stories to come back and back.
1: But even though these are our new American stories, they all have something in common. Each of these founders had to do something which was at the very least shady and at the very most illegal to get people to believe in their company. And by putting this morally questionable behavior on blast, Ben Arendonk believes these shows might impact how we think about founder culture and
3: tech companies and how we hold them accountable. I think these shows Many of them are very clearly intended to be warnings, right? Slowly, the more you have more of these examples, the more this becomes a kind of story that we are familiar with, a figure that is universally recognized, a kind of scam that we can point to and say like, oh, that's just like this other thing. It is not that one show creates a change, it is that it becomes more in the climate of our understanding of how this economy works. And so we grow more familiar with the dangers, the warning signs, the potential concerns with like one dude who can swear he can disrupt old industries or whatever. And I think it's a little early to say whether this kind of genre is going to have that same impact that, say, television did on gay marriage or even race integration, which has been a really key element of how America has understood itself over the last century and television had a huge role in. But the way that we are so fascinated by these right now, it makes me feel like they probably will have some staying power for us.
1: So even though it feels like yesterday when the social network came out, stay tuned for Silicon Valley taking over your TVs going forward. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our head of audio, Graylin Brashear. We had additional support this week from Sajin Corielis and Hannah Parker. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, who had help from Ellie McAfee-Han. We also have a new producer starting with us, Will Livingston. And Skim This will be back in your feet again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.